Yo. Mr. Orenstein, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I stayed up until 12.30 p.m. last night playing Fortnite with Taylor Otwell while my wife was dealing with a newborn baby and also <laughs> not sleeping, but I was not sleeping playing video games, and I'm paying the price for that today after having to go to bed into a room with a non-sleeping newborn at midnight instead of going to bed at like nine when I should have but wow the Laravel elite playing Fortnite <clears throat> that's right that's good yeah what you, you guys do duos yeah we just play duos but we probably play for like an hour and a half a day honestly like broken up over Whoa. like a, a couple a couple breaks are you ranked is this a ranked thing we don't play ranked I don't even want to know like I don't know we're terrible like we're obviously better than we used to be but I, I still know deep down that we're that were terrible yeah playing online video games is my favorite way to like hang out with virtual friends i think that's mm. like uh something i'm i've learned yeah i like that too yeah. i started an overwatch team during covid with a couple friends and we've like now there's like one or two people on there that i don't i just have only know through the internet and it's been an awesome way to like casually hang out with people and stay in touch with them while doing something fun yeah yeah it's good times yeah. so what do you want to talk about today I want to talk about um, some of the interesting points from my Laracon talk okay. about mistakes you were likely to make as a developer becoming a founder. That seems uh, relevant to this audience. I think it does. It's, it's, it's on, on theme. Um, so we can link out to the talk, of course, so if you want to watch a full sort of like live presentation of these points plus more, you can do that. But I think I'm going to cherry pick a few things here that I think might make good discussion topics yeah. and we can uh, have your feedback in there too. Sounds good. Yeah. So I do feel like it's important to start off. Like, I feel like I need just this like global caveat on basically everything I say, which is like, I'm an N of one. I'm an N of one person. And also I've done N of one companies effectively, like really. So it's yeah. like, these are things that I have come to believe based on my experience. I wouldn't be shocked at all if in a few years I look back at some of these and think, oh, actually, I totally disagree with that now. Or like, I was way too confident about that one. So, you know, these are sort of my my takes so far but you know don't don't change your life dramatically based on this without some like self-reflection and you know analysis and whatnot uh, i think you're underselling it here i think uh <laughs> yeah no this this is the laws of okay. business development that's a better approach okay <laughs> all right fine yeah. <laughs> maybe we get more views if that were our, our stance if that were our style yeah yeah 12 indisputable truths of starting a business as a founder that's right okay all right, well, we'll go. All right, I'm going to up my confidence, <laughs> my baseless confidence level. All right, so first thing is, I think a lot of devs dream of starting a SaaS, which I super get because like there's this beautiful recurring revenue and you're like paying, like someone is renting software from you, which is just kind of like a really cool thing. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's great. It is sexy and like it's nice to have a SaaS. But I do feel like um, Rob Walling kind of nailed this when he talked about the thing he calls a stair-step approach, which is like there's different difficulty levels of businesses. And SaaS is kind of at the top. There's a lot of things you would need to know or to learn to go from, hey, I mostly focus on writing code to I have a SaaS that is doing well. Yeah. Um, because there's sales in there, there's marketing, there's compliancy stuff. Like there's just a, there's a million things beyond the, the code bit. And so... My, my advice here is to start with something um, like, quote unquote, sell something that's actually kind of free. Yeah. So like, see if you can sell people on a tweet. Can you write a tweet that gets 
a thousand views or gets retweeted a few times by interesting people? Or can you write a post that gets a decent, like a, a blog post or an article or a YouTube video or a podcast episode? Like, can you make anything that people engage with in some somewhat meaningful way? Mm-hmm. Um, and I like this as like your warm up because it, like you're you're selling a thing. You're it, this is kind of like you're like practicing marketing. You're practicing understanding people. It's it's selling on easy mode, right? Because like there's no friction of someone purchasing, but you still yeah. need to get someone to buy in the sense that like you you have to get them to be interested you have to get them to use the thing you know whether that's like using a tweet might be liking it and sharing it or sharing a blog post like um how can you get people to buy into something you know without even asking for money If, if you can't sell something for free you definitely can't sell something that costs money you know? Yeah, probably not. Sometimes price can be a signal. So it could be that sure. like, a thing that has a cost might actually be more appealing for some reason than free things. But as like a, you know, getting your feet under you and starting to learn how to create things of value, I do think, yeah, can you, can you get sort of a, a free, some buy-in that's very light and easy from people is a good first signal to sort of determine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think another example you've given to that I think is good is like open source too. Like that's like another fun little product, you know, that you can... I like that you a lot. Can build. Can you write docs? Can you write copy for the marketing site? Can you deal with the the customer support that shows up and answering people's questions? Like, does that do you hate that? You know what I mean? Yeah, um, totally. Um, That's a good point, actually. Like, you're not just learning along the way, but you're also getting like sort of personal feedback as you mm-hmm. bump into these things. Like, do you decide after like a couple months of doing this, you're like, oh, I really don't enjoy interacting with customers or answering yeah. questions or making content marketing whatever it is you can uh, you can bail out at a slightly higher level yeah for sure yeah so so if you're starting with free next step i see is like selling a one-time purchase yeah which i think you know a few things about i even actually included your uh, refactoring to collections story in my talk mm-hmm. like you you went from dev to self-employed founder person on the back of the success of that ebook yeah. And we can maybe talk about this, like as we cover more things, like maybe it'd be good to cover more things first. But the first thing I did was a SaaS, not a book. Mm, you know what I mean? And nice. a SaaS, nobody knows about because it's a total failure, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that's great. But the, but the course worked. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to downplay your abilities because I do think you make incredible stuff. Like you have a super high bar for polish and quality. Like you are, you're world-class at making things. But I do remember you describing to me that like, Refactoring to collections was basically taking things that people, everyone in the Ruby world knew and like making it understandable and addressable for people in the PHP world. Yeah, definitely. That, that was like the same with my testing course too. Like I sort of like see my role as this like explorer who like goes to the distant lands and collects the knowledge and brings it back to the homeland. You know, that's basically mm-hmm. what I did with, with both of those things, which Uh, Not to say that that's like the approach that you should use to making a one-time sales product, but it is like a a useful approach. And it's also just like an interesting, useful reminder that like you don't necessarily have to be like coming up with brand new ideas for something to be valuable. Like translation is valuable. Curation is valuable. And that's basically, you know, what I was doing. I read like every TDD book and every programming language I could find and then turned it into like one thing that was catered to a specific audience with a shared context where everything was going to be like 
where the, the barrier to like understanding it was going to be way lower than basically what I had to go through uh, because they don't have to do the translation work or the curation work or trial and error, see which ideas actually seem to work and which ones don't, you know? Um, yeah. 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 And I think a, the explorer metaphor is interesting. I think I like to think about it as like becoming the X guy, like the, the whatever guy. So like my start here was like becoming the Vim guy. And mm-hmm. I basically would just go read the documentation for like plugins and like the Vim help files themselves. And then I turned that into a free conference talk that did really well and like got me a lot of Twitter followers. And then I turned that into a paid screencast that I sold for $9. And I sold like a few thousand of those. And those were like my first, that was my first income online. And I was like, oh man, I can do this. And it was just effectively repackaging and explaining something like knowledge in like a slightly more approachable way. Yeah. So why do you think like doing a one-time sale thing is not as hard as, as doing a SaaS? Because I do think like there's so many of the same elements. So what does the SaaS have that that doesn't have that makes it easier? You know, like you still have to do support. You still have to do marketing. You still eh. have to, yeah. you know. Do you, I mean, support, do you really? Is there is there much support on a one-time sale? It's different. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm baiting you a little bit here yeah, yeah. <laughs> is this a softball you've tossed me uh yeah right support is, is pretty easy actually so i still have like a one-time sale product for sale like my uh uh refactoring rails course and like it still gets sales and i basically get no emails about it it's like the freest money yeah in the world which is great so i, I basically see like one-time purchases as mostly zero support um it's also just i think easier to get someone to pay one time versus multiple times. And we, we did a whole episode actually on, on lifetime pricing, which is sure. the most extreme version of this that people can listen to. But in general, yeah, I think everyone can sort of intuitively understand why that might be the case. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a big advantage to just like a product like that having like a finish line, you know, which SaaS just has no finish line, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's the thing is like this, this monthly charge or even the annual charge is coming up again and again. And so you have to deliver continuous value and people don't just generally want the same value they got last month. They want increasing value. And so if your product stays the same, you're probably not going to do okay. And you have to keep the servers running. You have to, it's a living thing, you know, whereas like, okay, I've exported the PDF. I've uploaded it to the platform that people can buy it from and download it from. Like, it's complete at this point. We will yes. always be able to read PDFs, you know? There will always mm-hmm. be a PDF reader. <laughs> um, yeah. Totally. There's just something about, like, being able to catch your breath at the end and, like, evaluate, did I enjoy this process, you know? <laughs> um, that yep. uh, with SaaS, you're signing up for, like, a, a infinite commitment, basically. Yeah, and I think it's hard to get to an MVP of SaaS that people would pay for. Uh, I think a time-wise is probably a, a good bit longer than mm-hmm. a paid product, a, a small paid product. Yeah. Speaking of your book in particular, so so Refactoring to Collections came out in 2016, and I asked you in preparation for this talk, I said, like, what did it do in sales this year? Yeah. And you you said $4,500. Yeah, for all of 2023 up to date or whatever? Uh, I guess so. I, I, I don't said know. This I don't, year, I don't so remember, I, but yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. But you know, th- thousands of dollars over some reasonable time period. Sure. Yeah. Um, at least eight months and maybe a whole year unclear. Um, but so like, yes, these products typically fall off in revenue as you're not promoting them, but as you do other things, they still get sales. Like you're out here doing other stuff and people are probably finding that book through the other things you're doing. So it's like another yeah. nice strength. Yeah. And I can say like some things do have a bit stronger 
of like a lifespan, you know, um, yeah. like refactoring UI, which is the book that me and Steve did together. That's like a very different story than my other stuff. Like that's done $40,000 in the last 30 days. You know, we released it in 2018. That's yeah. awesome. That's crazy. So that's five years old and it's still doing like half a million dollars a year, you know, and just, we do literally nothing with it. Literally nothing. Like yeah. it has distribution because we advertise it in the tailwind documentation and that's right. like a big advantage. But even before we had like the brain dead obvious idea to do that, because we didn't do that for years, it was still doing like $25,000 a month. Yep. So, um, there's a chance that you could kind of have a hit, you know, too. yes. Uh, perennial seller is a great book by Ryan holiday about that sort of phenomenon. Um, but uh, I think you actually just touched on an interesting point here. So I'm recommending people start off by like selling something free. And this is an, a benefit of doing this is like, you're building up your marketing chops and you're building up an audience. And so like part of the reason your, your things do so well is so many, you have like distribution. So many mm -hmm. people know about you, follow you on Twitter, like the things you're doing, like you already are good at getting people to sort of pay attention to what you're doing. And if you're good enough at that, you can eventually just sort of throw paid options at people and some percentage will take you up on that and can be serious money. Yeah, for sure. So like when we started Tuple, I had been giving conference talks, teaching developers things, tweeting about things, writing articles for, for years. And that helped so much in the early days to like have that initial audience just like get in our mailing list and and onboard as our initial customers. So yeah, selling free stuff. So I th are we still on the first point here so far? <laughs> We're on the start. So, all right. So we, we, we said free stuff and then we said one-time purchases and here's, okay. here's the third one, okay. which is something with built-in distribution. Okay. There you go. So it leads in yeah. nicely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to make something as popular as Tailwind so that you can stick your link sure, on there and yeah. make half a million dollars a year. So uh, instead, maybe think about going where people are already searching for things. Um, so Shopify apps are nice for this. There's already a Shopify app store. It already has a search built into it. You can probably even run ads on it, I suspect. Mm -hmm. um, app stores, iOS, Android app stores, similar idea. WordPress plugin, VS Code plugins, that sort of thing. Um, there are places where potential customers are already looking for things. Yeah. And possibly even do billing for you. Like I'm almost positive the Shopify app store, just like outs, like billing is done, is handled for you. You don't even yep. get the credit cards. Yeah. This is a nice like stair step on the way approach. Yeah. It's just like another piece that you don't have to necessarily master yourself first. Yep. So you can focus on the marketing, the product, you know, that sort of yeah. stuff. And yeah. And like distribution is probably the hard skill that you're getting somewhat for free in these places. Mm -hmm. But like honestly, Shopify handling billing is not a small thing. Like Stripe is amazing. We are very happy Stripe customers. We still write a lot of billing code still. Yeah. Even today. Totally. Like the, you you will still be investing dozens, hundreds of hours over the the course of your app in like getting billing right and handling those various things. Yeah. Um so not having to do that is a yeah. really nice shortcut. Yeah. So I think we are still on the first point, right? Which is like, don't start with a SaaS. <laughs> right. oh, yes. yes, correct. Um, do we have more on this one? Or what's like another just like common mistake that developers make when they're coming up with an idea for a business that they want to create? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, selling to consumers, I think, like selling to individual end users, I think is one I'm, I, I see a lot still. I think is like very common because you sort of are yourself a end user like a consumer person. Yeah. Um, so like I'm making a notes app, I'm making a to-do app, uh, that sort of thing. Anything where someone is going to buy it on their personal credit card 
is just hard mode. The churn is higher. The willingness to pay is so much lower. Mm-hmm. It requires so many more customers to like yeah. get a reasonable business. It is just, it's brutally hard. It seems like it should be easier because like, well, I'm a person and I know how to evaluate that, but it, I just think it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the case for sure. Like people pay for like Netflix, you know what I mean? They, yeah. Not a lot of people want to pay a subscription for like a personal productivity tool. There are some, you know, but yeah, not as many as there are businesses who want to pay money to simplify the problems that, that they deal with. Yeah, and Netflix like raises their price two dollars a month, and people freak out. Yeah, big time. <laughs> but like, we're renegotiating this like a, a contract right now, and I, it's gonna it's gonna go from something like seven thousand to something like fifty thousand a year. And like the director of engineering is like, yeah, cool. Like as long as it's not like six figures, like that's probably fine. Yeah, yeah, and that's way easier. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of what you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least that's what I want. Yeah, and the nice thing with B two B, I've heard Rob Walling mention this too. I, I think like he uses like forty nine dollars a month should be like your baseline. Like build something that you can charge forty nine dollars a month for because. Yeah. Otherwise, you need an insane amount of customers. And if this is like your first try, like trying to find that insane amount of customers is is not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Man, is that a common mistake? If your price, like just do like $49.99, $2.99 as your first three pricing tiers and like you'll you'll avoid yeah. yourself a lot of pain. The, the patio 11 pricing ladder. Just do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if it's that's too much, then like keep working on like making it more valuable. It's, yeah. I think it's yeah, nice. That makes sense to me. Uh, don't sell to cheap businesses. Don't make a thing for yoga studios. Don't make a thing for restaurants. Yeah, sure. Like struggling businesses you don't want as customers. You want yeah. businesses with high margins that lose track of a million dollars a year type yeah. of customers. And, and like value software. Mm-hmm. Like it's hard, it's hard to convince someone that really is into yoga like why they need a your fancy software. Probably. I'm, yeah. I just, I wouldn't want to have to do it's it. It's so funny because like I'm thinking like, about making these mistakes myself and and maybe this would be like kind of fun honestly just like interject with like these sort of these stories of doing like the same thing because like like i said like the first business i ever started was a SaaS business it was this thing called nitpick ci which was like a tool for like reviewing your github pull requests on php projects and noticing like formatting errors based on like Mm -hmm. your style guide you know making sure you had the right number of tabs on lines and that you included semicolons where they're supposed to be there and, and stuff like that. And um, I just like went heads down and built it and released it. And I had a bit of an audience, but like it, it never turned into anything, you know, because I didn't do any real marketing until until it was done. And maybe that's like another point that we can talk about later. But uh, mm. yeah, you know, it, it just uh, just didn't work. And then the, what you're talking about now, like the don't sell the cheap businesses thing, it like reminded me of a business idea I was like really excited about that I started prototyping, but never, never finished that I totally forgotten about, which was like a way better, like platform for like CrossFit gyms to like manage their like, uh, members and like workouts and leaderboards and all that stuff. A sick part of me still thinks like that one maybe could kind of work because like CrossFit gyms are expensive at least, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, but, uh, yeah, I, it was the exact same type of thing, you know, like I, I was totally victim to like these same sorts of like, oh, yeah, that sounds like it would be a really good idea. Like, do I pay for that software? Do I know anyone who pays for that software? No, but it sounds like a good idea. Like I could see how yes. someone would pay for that software. Right. You know? Yes. 
Yes. So uh, another thing that I think is a good sign for a business idea is if it's something you're paying for at work. Mm-hmm. Or if it's maybe even better, it's something you built at work. Okay. Like while you were at work, people were like, oh, this is an annoying enough product. We should spend developer time to build a solution for this. That should, I think, set off like positive bells in your head. Like this is good. Like a business has decided that this is worthwhile. Can you think of any specific uh, examples of that? I don't know if I have specific examples as like, hey, I've seen this and I think this would be a good business. But Mm -hmm. like, I think things like if you're building yourselves interesting dashboards, perhaps... Like if someone high up in your company is like, I need a set of reports that show me this sort of data or like customer service is having trouble diagnosing these issues. Can you build me some sort of visibility thing or something? Yeah. One that comes to mind for me, I don't know if this is the actual story or not, but I could imagine how this was a story is like services like Churnbuster back in the day, mm, you know, where, sure. okay, well, people are canceling and, you know, we should be let's build something to like automatically like follow up with these people and try to recharge their cards and all that stuff. Cause like we're losing a lot of money to just like failed payments. Um, totally. And then you yeah. build it and then like, wait a minute, this would be valuable for basically any subscription business. Maybe we can like spin totally. this out into its own thing. Wow. We're spending so much on AWS. Can you build something to like pay attention to instances that are going idle or, and like kill mm-hmm. those for us, that sort of thing. Like, um, Close.io is an interesting example. They're like a CRM software yep. used by salespeople. And like they built an internal version of their own CRM as they were doing sales for other companies. They used to be like a consultancy and they would like do sales for you. And they had this internal tool they used and like eventually decided, hey, this tool is really good. It's better than what's out there. Let's sell this instead. And now they're a software company. You know what? I think you can sort of make like another point that's related to this, uh, which is if your company is like maybe like a little bit frustrated with a a product that you use and you've kind of like tossed around the idea of building something internally, but the company's never committed the resources to do it and it's just never felt worth it. That's probably not a sign that it would be a good idea to go and build and like put in the market because like the pain must not be strong enough for someone to be willing to like switch you know, from mm. what they, they mm. were using still could be like a, a good idea, but don't just like blindly believe that just because like you're a little bit frustrated with a tool that you use at work, that if you build something better, like you could get other people who are frustrated to actually switch. You might be able to find people who haven't picked a tool yet, but it's going to be stronger if you can build something that people are like motivated to switch to from, from what they're using. Yes. I like that. So like the things that people complain about are not necessarily good business ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, there are things that everyone loves to bitch about, but like, are like, they don't care enough to go solve it. Yeah, yeah. So I think the Mom Test is a wonderful book to read about this kind of thing. It's about like validating product ideas, and one of the things he encourages you to do is ask like, "Oh, you had that? Like, yeah, totally. Uh, Jira sucks." And like, did you have you spent any time looking for something better? Oh, no, you didn't? Okay, well, that that tells you something. Yeah, yeah. so you're not going to find my Jira replacement product because you're not looking for one. Right, and like, yeah, yeah, you're frustrated by it, but not frustrated enough, apparently. You're not actually trying to make a swap here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then again, I would say it's like X, but better, I think, is a good template for product ideas. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, it's like this thing that our business already pays for, but actually I have a, a pretty significant improvement on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that can often be fruitful. Yeah, like just to like related to what you're saying about like if you complain about something at work that's like annoying or you like you wish was easier, but like your company isn't spending any money to solve it. Like it's it's not a problem that you're solving with like an inferior tool. It's like just a like problem that you just live with. Um, mm. 
you know, good chance a lot of other people are just going to live with it too, you know? So again, not guaranteed to be like a good idea. I feel like the best ideas are things that are extremely validated because like you already pay for them. Like your company already pays for them or, um, you personally already, already pay for it or whatever. Like I, I, for me, if I was going to start something new, that would be like one of the criteria, not the only criteria, but I, I would only want to build something that people already pay for, you know? Yep. Nice. So another thing that I, I recommend is, is a thing that I did in the early days of tuple, which is sell vaporware. Mm-hmm. So I think if you do decide to go down the software route, it's worth trying to spend some time like making sure that if you build the thing, people will actually want it. And a great way to validate that is to see if they'll pay you for it before it even exists. Yeah. Which sounds like a ridiculous bar, but my take on this is like if you can't sell the dream, you probably can't sell the reality. Sure. But like when you describe it, it's perfect, right? Like I'm it's, it's going to work like this, it's going to be so awesome in this way, it's going to solve these problems, and if no one's excited enough to kind of help fund development of that, when they actually see the kind of clunky interface or the compromises you had to make, the trade-offs you had to include in the actual shipping product, uh, you, you, you might be in trouble. Yeah. And you, you don't have to like come up with a pitch that every single person who would buy the real thing would also buy the vaporware version of, but totally. you want to find at least a few, you know? Yeah. So we had a waiting list of people that were interested in like tuple. And so I would reach out to them. Like I would email the whole list and be like, look, I'm trying to recruit a handful of early customers that want to get in help fund the development and like shape the roadmap early on. Mm-hmm. And that's not most people. It was like a, a few percent of people would like respond and be interested in that. But I still managed to sell something like 20 grand of like annual tuple subscriptions before yeah. it even existed. Yeah. And it was amazing. like, okay, cool. This, yeah, it's like, all right, it exists. It, like the, like, or, like yeah. or, sorry, the, the demand exists. People want this to be real. Yeah. Other mistakes of the uh, developer turned founder? Uh, assuming that people are rational. Okay, what mistake. do you mean by that? Um, I think a good example is software developers. If you make a tool to save software developers time uh, or to like prevent them from having to write code, I think you will often be disappointed. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like you should be able to say, well, if, if my product costs $100 a month and I save you $105 per month, you should obviously sign up for it. And clearly, clearly you will because you're rational. It's like, mm, even if those numbers are like much bigger, it, it often cannot be true. Like, yeah. like People aren't really like automatons run crunching the ROI numbers all the time. They're often buying with emotions and vibes and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way you put this before is like um, offering developers a way to like write less code is actually not that appealing to developers totally. because developers like to write code. It's like selling yeah. a musician something that lets them not have to play their instrument anymore. You know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, that makes sense. Yes. I think it's also a mistake to not choose a customer you like. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I like working on Tuple is because I get to like sell to developers. Yep. And like our bug reports are so good. Like I can write an email like with technical stuff in it and people understand it and appreciate it. Like it's fun for me to have a product for developers. Uh, if I thought of a business idea that seemed great, but I was selling to people and like interacting with people all day long that like I just like didn't relate to and didn't like that much. Yeah. Not worth it, in my opinion. What's an example of someone doing that um well i have a friend that sells software to countertop installers Mm -hmm. it's like scheduling software and i think he's happy he has his business i don't think he would say like oh never do this but for a long time he and his co-founder were going to like trade shows 
with like countertop installers and fabricators. And he was just like, this just like was not fun. And eventually we stopped doing it. And we didn't, we didn't want to do it. Um, so I, I think you, you can think of an idea, but maybe consider that like, if it works, you'll probably be at this for years. Yeah. Like, are you cool with like that many years of interacting with people yeah. like this? Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. I think another mistake is being comfortable with your pricing. Okay. I think people use their emotions to set their prices. And the thing they're looking for is to not feel bad about it. They don't want people to complain about it being too high. And they don't want to look at it and feel a little bit stressed that maybe it is too high. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, they tend to price their things too low. There's this weird shift that you kind of have to go through, I think, especially if you're going to go this B2B route, business to business route, um, which is like 10 grand is not a lot of money. 100 grand is not that much money. Like businesses spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on stupider things than your product all the time. Yeah. Uh, and so like you're used to evaluating pricing and purchases through your like I'm a person like lens and businesses are like operating with so many more zeros that it's it requires a strong mental shift away from your your defaults. And so if you look at your pricing and you don't feel kind of uncomfortable, it's probably too low. Yeah, I think it's easy to say that about other people's businesses. Very easy to say that. Oh, God, yeah. Businesses. 100%. <laughs> All this is easy to say. <laughs> That's yeah. A, yeah. That's the beauty of podcasts. It's like, well, my pricing is right, but yours is wrong, you know? Um, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> yes. Someone else should probably set your pricing. Yeah. Um, another thing that like devs in particular, I think, get really obsessed with is this idea of like self-serve sign-up. Okay. Which I, I totally get because like, it's like the dream. It's like you're asleep. Someone finds your product. It's just what they want. They sign up. They love it. They like convert to a paid user right away. You just made more money. Oh my God. It's amazing. Totally get it. But I think in particular in the early days, you can learn so much from watching people sign up and start using your product that you are missing out on an incredible opportunity if you try to build self-serve sign up early on. Yeah. And like, I would go so far as to say like, if you have not recently watched someone sign up for your product, you are missing out on a, like a treasure trove of like, how are they not seeing that button? How are they confused by this thing? Wow. They like really, they thought this works like this. Oh wow. Everyone's clicking on that thing when they should be clicking on this thing. It's like, it's always painful. How, how have you like observed people doing that in the past? Like what do you use specific tools for that? Or like what's the circumstances under which you're able to watch someone do that normally? So, I mean, there are tools that like you can install on your like a web app and it will like show you like a live recording of people mm-hmm. going through the site. But I'm actually talking about like this is early, like you're like you're like in your first six months, let's say, or for it's your first like hundred customers. Like I would recommend not even like letting people sign up by themselves. Like you have to get on a call with me, share your screen and talk about like what you're thinking. Yeah. And just like take notes and you will be guaranteed kind of blown away. Yeah. I could see how that could be the case. <laughs> yep. Cool. And like we recently did a couple of these recently and like we've, we've had a product out for a long time and there's still a bunch of things. It's like, oh man, like it's, it's brutal to watch. It's tough. Like it's, but there's, it's, yeah. it's very valuable. Dude, just looking at like your own product in incognito mode, even on your own mm. is always like, it's, it's hard sometimes, you know, it's like, oh, is this really like what people see? And this is really experience people get. I thought this was good at the time. This is terrible. How do we make money? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so even that I think is like a helpful, a helpful exercise. Like we noticed a thing the other day where we were like, we're still haven't done this yet, but I think probably going to do it where on the Tailwind CSS documentation right now, the most popular search terms that turn up no results are like 
components that are in Tailwind UI. So, so some type like navbar, and then we know results. It's like, I mean, we, we should just like include the results from Tailwind UI and just have it like link out to that site. So at least someone finds something. But then we were just like walking through what would that experience be like? And they would go from the Tailwind docs to this like page on Tailwind UI that just has a list of nav bars with no context at all, like nothing explaining what the fuck this site even is, like why it's on a different domain or that it costs money or, or anything, you know what I mean? It's, it just be really confusing and like missing a lot of, of context. Um, so yeah, I could totally imagine how actually watching someone else go through it that really doesn't have any of the context that you have in your head and where you can't take anything for granted would just be even, you know, a hundred times more exposing. You know? Yeah. It's crazy. When I, when I, every time I do this, I'm kind of shocked at how unwilling people are to read anything on a page mm-hmm. so you design this thing assuming like oh well, i'll just explain right here how all this works and what i found is people like will kind of sometimes read an h1 they'll often kind of read what's written on the button they're about to click and that's about it and like anything yeah. anything in between <laughs> no definitely not yeah. so anything you put in a p tag no 100 percent ignored no don't use p tags yeah. you don't need p tags you might get them yeah. to read the h1 maybe but I do find they generally read the yeah. button text. That's that seems pretty reliable. Yeah. So if you yeah. want someone to do something, make a giant button with like those words on it. But often they'll be like, "I'm trying to do X," and like there's a button that like it has X prime on it. And it's like almost X. It's like what my mental model of what yeah. X is, but that's not how they're thinking about it, and so they can't yeah, find the button. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah, it's crazy hard yeah. to design an interface that everyone finds intuitive. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. It's still a work in progress. I'm, we're still trying to do this. Um. Other mistakes? Yeah, uh, there's there's a few more. Uh, let's let me just maybe hit like one more, which is that I think most people probably don't want to raise VC. Okay. Like I think if your vision for starting a software company is to make a lot of money, to have a nice lifestyle, to enjoy going to work every day, I think VC is probably not your best bet. I think you generally want to bootstrap if those are your goals. If you really, really need to have like a massive impact or like you're working in some industry where like you have, it requires this massive capital outlay to start. Um, If you're unhappy with anything other than an IPO, then VC makes sense. But other than that, I think you're better off like scraping together a year of runway over some period of time and then trying to take a shot at just like funding this yourself. Interesting. Yeah. I agree. I think what I wonder sometimes or what I don't know is like, it does seem like there is like a crowd where that feels like the default thing to do, but it it doesn't feel like it's a crowd I've ever been part of. So I just don't feel like that exposed to like what creates that sort of mindset. You know, I've never lived in San Francisco. I've never worked for a VC backed company. I only have ever like associated with other bootstrappy people yeah yeah still like that's always traditionally sort of been like this like sort of outside smaller group even though it's like the only group that i've ever been a part of like how much exposure do you have to like the environments that sort of like create people who assume that like the first step to building any company is to like raise a round you know yeah i think the discourse around this has changed i think it was more common before and i think the word on this is kind of more out now. I don't think this is like very controversial or surprising to people these days. But I had a friend who emailed me and said, hey, I have someone who's considering starting a company. Like, would you talk to her? And I was like, sure. And this was like six months ago. And like within a few minutes, it became clear that she thought like she needed to like make a thing to go convince people to give her like, to like raise a seed round. Mm-hmm. 
So I think this like this mentality definitely still exists. I do think it is somewhat geographic. I suspect it's yeah, like San Francisco yeah. is probably the strongest version of that. I do think something that you said that is interesting that is maybe not intuitive to people is the if you want to make a lot of money, you should bootstrap yeah. your company. Yeah. I think that maybe is the reverse of people's expectations sometimes. They think, okay, raise a bunch of money, build big company, that's how I become huge. Like I don't want to like own a local like shoe polishing shop, you know, where I'm not like making tons of money, but I think you're right that if you bootstrap a company, it doesn't have to do like nearly as well for you to take like a lot out of it. Totally. Like if you raise VC money, you have a board. The board gets to decide how much you're allowed to pay yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to use any extra money that the company has to, to invest it into growth to try and get the outcomes that like the VCs need. But if you can bootstrap a company that does a few million a year with basically no team, mm -hmm. you know, you get to decide what to do with all of that money. You know, um, a VC backed company making $10 million a year that is like, that's very, very not that's a failure good. That will probably huge, be encouraged huge to spend failure. the last of its money and blow up or maybe return the money to its investors. And you get to take like nothing out of that. Right. A $10 million like a year bootstrapped company with like a team of five, that's like the sort of company that you can pay yourself two and a half million dollars a year from, mm -hmm. you know? It's kind of like a, a small is big type of like <laughs> realization in a way. You know, if you want a big personal outcome that's like a lot more guaranteed, that's definitely the way to go. Because the the ceiling that you have to hit for it to be like a huge success for you is so, so much more achievable. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yep. So just decide like what, what journey you want to get on. Because if you get on the VC journey, it's really hard to get off. That's tough. You can raise mm -hmm. around if you start a bootstrapped company. That's fine. You can always yeah. sell some equity to VC investors later. Um, but the other way, I think almost never happens. Yeah. So just be careful. I think the other thing about like bootstrapping is create some like useful constraints that help you make sure you're building something that people are actually going to pay for. That's actually going to work. You don't have that like safety net, you know, of, okay, well, we're just going to keep spending money, keep trying to like build our user base, whatever, and then turn on monetization at some point yep, or, totally. or whatever, you know, you have to like make something that people actually want there's no way to like fool yourself um yes yeah you know I like that yep now i i mean i think somebody could come on here and make some decent arguments for like why it could be nice maybe raise like a small round and there's like there's versions of like raising funding that i think are less damaging like than like institutional venture capital like sure tiny seed and um uh calm fund kind of thing mm -hmm. so there are versions of this that are more set up for people that are trying to like be bootstrapper ish that need a little bit of capital to get going that don't tie you to yeah. this path so strongly. So those are worth looking into possibly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Yeah. But sometimes I wonder, like I was really lucky that i released like my first book, um, a year before, like my first daughter was born. So I had already kind of like gone out of like the working for someone else kind of world and had like enough to like, mostly what I had was like time now, you know, like, evenings and weekends like don't really exist when you have like a young family um mm -hmm. so i had been able to buy back my days before that happened so at least i had that time you know like without that i don't i don't know how i could have even done it so i think 
something like tiny seed or compound makes a lot of sense for someone who's just in that situation where it's just like, I need to buy my days back for a year, yeah. you know? Um, yep. but obviously you want to work with investors who have like aligned expectations, you know, and those are two examples of, of ones that I think make, make more sense than raising from like, you know, injuries and Horowitz or something. Sure. Unless that's the, the thing you want to make. If that's the kind of company you're trying to build and it's like IPO or bust, then that's probably the right stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right, so last thing, and then we'll wrap it. I see sometimes people get pretty um, concerned and wrapped up and focused on the like compliancy, businessy things of like mm-hmm. state sales tax and VAT and GDPR and, and things like that. And I think the reality is like there's often like very explicit like catch-up mechanisms where it's like, oh, you didn't pay tax in Minnesota when you someone from Minnesota signed up for your SaaS, but like you eventually figured it out and like you send them a note and say, hey, we owe you for this. Like here, like let's let's get started. Like there's 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 often like kind of explicit like legal like you're okay. Like the first hundred thousand dollars, you don't need to worry about it, or like the first X customers don't need to worry about it. Or if you did, just send us a note and like maybe pay a little penalty or something. There's often ways to kind of like I feel like there's like flexibility in businessy stuff like that often. Where you can, yeah. you can kind of like, oops, we messed up, but let's get this squared away, and it's generally okay. So in the early days, when you're like trying to just like not die, I think you need to put as much of your effort and focus as you can on like actually making something good, making your customers happy, shipping them good things, and then if the business is working and like and, and starting to su- succeed, you have a bit more bandwidth to kind of come in and like start taking those things more seriously, doing a better job of them, complying better. Um, that sort of thing. None of that's legal or tax advice, obviously. And like, yeah, you're yeah, taking some risk sure. there. You know, like I, I, I hesitate to talk about this a little bit. It's like, yeah, Ben told me not to pay taxes and I got in trouble. Totally, totally possible. But, but based sure. on knowing a lot of entrepreneurs and talking to a lot of people about this, I think the boots on the ground reality of this is like slowly getting your house in order as your business begins to work is very common and seems to not come back and hurt people in, that I've heard about. Yeah. Yeah. I think like another way to put it is like, if you let yourself be like too concerned and worried about that stuff, like you're never even going to have the opportunity to like be compliant because you're not going to have a business to be compliant with, Mm -hmm. you know? So being comfortable with a little risk in that sense, that's kind of like one of the traits of being able to even start a business. I think it's like, it's a very high risk, scary type of thing to even do in in the first place. So I, I definitely have seen like friends and people who've tried to start things that just never get anywhere with anything because they spend like the first six months just trying to like cross their T's and dot their I's and like being like, well, I, this isn't even possible. Like I, there's no way, there's no service I can use to pay tax in Lithuania for this thing. So like, well, I can't even start this company, blah, 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 blah. Well, other companies are being started around you and succeeding. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You just kind of got to figure out like what to focus on, you know? Yep. And obviously that stuff's important, but it's only important if the business is even a business, you know? Right. Yep. You know, this, this whole idea of there being a little bit of risk to things and having to pick what to focus on, even though everything seems crucial and important, like, I had that feeling a lot in product management too, which is just kind of like a subset of the business. That's not the whole business. And maybe this will just be like a helpful metaphor to help people like understand that this is just kind of the way things have to be. But um, 
a lot of time it'll feel like there's like six important projects that we have to do and they all feel like non-negotiable. Like all of these need to be done immediately. Like there, there's no way we can push any of these off. They're all critical. They all have to be done now. But like the real world reality of life is they simply cannot, you know, like you do not have the resources to do all of them now. So regardless of whether they have to be, they cannot be, you know? So you have to pick one mm -hmm. or two and make progress on those, you know? And this kind of feels like the same thing. Like, yes, like we have to have all that stuff in place to, to run the business, but you also need to have a product and I'm not going to be able to build a product and find customers if we're spending all our time on that. So if that's the way that you're going to see it, then just don't do anything, you know, because like that's the outcome that you're going to end up with anyways. You have to pick the more important of the two hyper important, critical, necessary things sometimes. Yeah. And it's stressful, <laughs> but that that's just part of it, you know? Yep. Now, if I had to guess this, this could be one of those things that I look back on in some amount of time and go, wow, that was, <laughs> that was stupid, reckless advice. Or like, that was just wrong on that one. It is in a way, but like, think about the fact that like Stripe is a successful company and like their entire customer base is made up of people who aren't properly paying taxes effectively. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> am I wrong? Like I'm basically right. Like any, like the whole thing is pitched just like, you can just like spin up a Stripe account and start collecting money online in like five seconds, except like you're not paying taxes anywhere properly or doing any of the things that like you're supposed to be doing. And it's not like Stripe's fault or anything, but people are using it that way to just test out ideas and see if they work. And okay, if this is going to work, okay, now we'll go and like cross our T's and, and dot our lowercase J's. That's like a, do you remember Wayne's world too? <laughs> <laughs> <No. laughs> it's a Wayne's world too reference. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that's like, the approach that you have to take you have to make sure that like all that overhead is actually gonna have been done for a reason yeah. and that means like taking a little bit of risk and, and like you kind of said there are like a lot of provisions and stuff in place where like oh if you don't meet this threshold then you don't have to file anything and yeah so yeah so to their credit they do have stripe tax so like they're working on it you know they're not they're like like 10 years after stripe launched sure but yeah. <laughs> providing tools but yeah i think if you audited a bunch of random businesses and said like and what is your state tax like are you paying tax in all 50 states correctly like how what percentage of people are doing that mm, probably pretty low yeah 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 for sure especially with the overseas stuff where you have to file all this paperwork with all these different countries it's and kind of a nightmare to comply with all the things you're supposed to comply to with it's it's really hard yeah but so yeah. you know start biting them off do the most important ones reduce the risk as you go and get successful and you know yeah yeah, the reality is business is messy. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think is the simplest way to put it. You think everything is just clear and black and white, and but it's not. There's a lot of judgment calls and, you know, yeah. risk analysis that has to happen. And that's just kind of how it is. And I would say there seems to be some recognition of this in like how these things are enforced and how you can come back in compliance and like what the penalties are and things like that. There seems to be a bit of recognition like, yeah, this is, it's tough yeah. to comply with everything. And therefore, if you find out you were off in some way, there's a way to get back in like the good graces. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's like, I'm sure some countries are different than others. Like the US and Germany are very different, you know, I think with uh, these types of rules. Yes. Um, but I don't know that that becomes like a borderline political discussion, but I have to say, like, I really appreciate 
as an entrepreneur after like starting your own business, you really start to see like how important like the idea of like ease of doing business like actually is to to innovation. You know, yep. you have to give people like the space and opportunity to take take these sort of risks safely, you know, or like no one can do it. And but it's really important mm -hmm. for progress and and just for personal like like freedom and, and achievement, you know what I mean? Like after like starting my own thing and having it actually work out, it made me like actually angry to like recognize like how hard some places make it to try and get that for yourself because it's like such a life changing thing yeah. to achieve, to be able to get that freedom and make something that you care about. And, and any like roadblocks that people put in the way of that feels like borderline oppressive to me, you know, mm -hmm. because that's like, it's such a, a positive thing for, the world you know totally but uh yeah. i would love to see a world where like for the first three years of your business or something it's just like the, the compliance required is just like incredibly low like sure. don't worry about yeah. paying any tax like like yeah if if you could make it make it easier for people to like just focus on getting the business working like focus on the product mm -hmm. focus on the customers and almost nothing else that would i think that would really that'd be good for the world yeah for sure all right let's wrap it there cool man yeah good place to wrap it sweet uh good talking yeah. See you. Catch you next time.